Welcome to episode four of our Real Estate Medicine podcast. I'm Kate Arrow. I'm an anaesthetist in uh, NHS Highland. And today we've got Dr. Suzanne Farrell, um, who's an anaesthetist in Lanarkshire. And um, Suzanne is going to share a little bit about her um, experience with realistic medicine. And we're going to have a bit of a focus on some work she's been doing setting up a shared decision making uh, clinic. So Suzanne, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi Kate, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, yes, I suppose the first thing I should say is call me Susie. Susie, Susie. Okay, Susie. <laughs> Suzanne's my Sunday name. Um, so yeah, I'm an anaesthetist in Lanarkshire and also in intensive care and I've been a consultant there for just over 10 years. So um, I guess what's brought me to realistic medicine has been a kind of circuitous journey. But if we start off by saying that half of my working week is in high risk anaesthetics and the other half is in intensive care, that gives me a kind of dichotomy in my job because I love talking, right? I'm a gab. Um, I like patients. I love hearing their stories. And as you know, you do the same job. It's really difficult when half the time you're spending your, your working week caring for patients that are unconscious. So, I have I have this desire to not just deliver high quality anaesthesia, but also to really engage with patients in as much as I can. So I guess I started off doing a Monday vascular list. That was difficult because it meant I had to go and see my patients on a Sunday. I thought that's no good. Like, you know, I don't want to go in on a Sunday and meet my patients at the last minute. So the kind of process evolved. I started bringing the patients up the week before. Then I started involving the surgeon and saying to the surgeon, listen, why don't we go and see the patient together? This is high risk stuff. Then I developed an interest in assessing high risk and what high risk actually means. I got funding. I managed to put in a business case and successfully got funding for cardiopulmonary exercise testing, which is one way of stratifying risk. So it kind of grew from there. And I think what I was trying to do was do the consent process better. But... Despite that, I just still had this sense that it wasn't enough, you know, that although we were telling people what the risks were, it was almost when the decision was made for them. And I kind of got this, uh, there was a few notable cases, there's a few patients that really stick in my mind over the years, who despite the risk assessment having said, yeah, you know, probably good to go ahead, did, did badly or didn't do as well as I hoped they would. So I had this kind of growing idea that there might be a different way to do this. So literally about seven years in, I'm with the word of a lie, I got this itch <laughs> that I had to go somewhere. Now, um, my, my best friend says I've got itchy feet and my husband um, says that I've always got a project on the go. So <laughs> despite having four children, I decided that the next project was going to be, I was going to try and find another way of thinking and another way of, of looking at this particular group of patients who are are very, very high risk for surgery. So I came across a job in New Zealand um, and I applied and I spoke to them and I said, listen, I want to come and work for you because they were looking for a locum really. But what I wanted to do was join a clinic that they had already established there and they had this clinic model that they called complex decision path. So I started trying to line up all the ducks and negotiate with my workplace to go away for not just the three months sabbatical that you earn after seven years as a consultant, but I really to go that far, I wanted to be away for a year. So um, I, had a, I had a lot of persuading to do. Uh, the NHS Lanarkshire supported me um, ultimately in going away. 
turned out to be on the brink of a pandemic. So in January 2020, I dragged uh, my husband and four children to the other side of the world just for a breath of fresh air and to try and see if there was a different way to do what I was doing. And oh my goodness, what a great decision. So I participated in the clinic there, which was which was really, really different, really labour intensive. Uh, instead of it just being an, a patient coming to see an anaesthetist face to face to discuss risks, they had two consultants. And I think that that's a an expensive idea for the NHS, but actually I think it is so valuable. Um, mm. You'll know yourself, Kate, that anaesthetists like surgeons have got different attitudes to risk. And I think the problem with a lot of high-risk patients coming to see one anaesthetist is that although that anaesthetist might have a risk discussion with the patient and think, yes, okay to go ahead, we've discussed it all, we've been through the consent process, the patient comes on the day for surgery and it's a different anaesthetist who thinks, oh, I'm really not sure about this. So that creates a problem because patients then can get cancelled on the day, they're deeply disappointed, um, the anaesthetist on the day feels uncomfortable but bad for having to cancel the patient. So there has to be a better way to do this. So that's why my clinic idea requires actually two consultants. There's one anaesthetist and there's one intensive care specialist. So that, I think, gives it, that turns it more into a multidisciplinary team instead of it yeah. just being one anaesthetist's opinion. And it also, it, but definitely it puts the patient at the heart of the multidisciplinary team and the patient's family who come along with it. That is absolutely crucial. So I've spent the last year setting this up and it's running and now it's been funded. I can't believe it. I mean, honestly, Everywhere you turn at the moment, we're told there's no money for anything. There's no, money. and I've managed to present this to our board in uh, September, and they've supported it. So, our goal, and it's rewarding, and I'm loving it. And and um, so, how did you how did you do it when you were still kind of on a shoestring? You know, like when you weren't when you weren't funded. Yeah. So when I came when I came back from. New Zealand, there was there was four hours a week, uh, a kind of job within a job was being advertised to be the realistic medicine debut. So I applied for that and I got it. So I have used um, that that time, if you like, to set up my clinic, right, to do all the legwork and stuff. Mm. However, what I really the people I really have to thank here are like my my two my two principal enablers um, to actually set up the clinic have given me their time for. So I've got one colleague who's uh, about the equivalent amount of experience to me and works in intensive care as well, and one uh, who does just anaesthetics. And they have both come a lot. I've basically come back full of enthusiasm for the, with this idea and said, listen, can you come and join me? Can you join me in this? And they've given me their time freely, their precious time, where they're not supposed to be non-clinical or recovering. Um, and in order to... To deliver this this kind of labour intensive two consultant um, consultation, so it's been great. So thanks Graham, thanks Vanessa, uh, thanks Sona for like making it happen really. And we've done that for a year uh, unfunded. So I've kind of counted it sort of in with the other stuff that I'm doing, but they have given their time for free. Very grateful. Yeah, and and so how how has it gone down with the I suppose I've got two questions like how is it how do the patients find it and how do you how do you like show that benefit 
when you're so limited on time in a way to get funding to prove its worth? Yeah, so, um, I mean, patients love it. So it really, um, when I presented all my data to the board, the two principal threads were, uh, when patients come to speak to us in a clinic like this, and you really put them at the heart of the decision and allow them to realise that actually sometimes having I know, a big operation is, a, is the right choice for them, if you allow them to realise that. And they effectively opt out of having high-risk surgery and choose to, to spend well the t- whatever time they have left. Now, this is hard. These are hard, hard conversations. Like you're asking someone who's got bowel cancer, for example, to consider the option of not having a curative resection. <clears throat> now, that for most people is very difficult to get their head around. You know, and most people, you know, it's a, if they've got cancer or an aneurysm, they want it dealt with. But actually, by the time we tell them what their individualised risk is, they say, Do you know what? don't fancy that um, and we would support that decision sometimes equally we support high-risk patients who do want to go ahead so this isn't about patients sometimes come a bit defensive thinking oh right last week the guy came in and said are you here to talk me out of this and I said no, yeah actually actually we're not at all not at all we're here to try and help you and what this might mean so it's not for me to say what's right for them now, in all honesty, if I was over the age of 80 for bowel cancer, I would not be having surgery, right? But I try very hard and I and I teach everyone not to say, you know, the thing that we've always said to patients, if you were my relative, right? Or yeah. It's a very, very, it's a very engaging way to, I suppose, garner trust with a patient, right? But I, I, I've schooled myself not to say that now. Um because it's not the right thing. You know, that's my choice, but it might not be their choice. Yeah. So you, ha- you have to kind of present the, the, the information neutrally and involve them and their family in making the right decision for them. So we have great chat. We have, so what does a good day look like for you? Tell me what tell me what you want doing for the next few months or years of your life. And like, like I love to get patient stories. So for example, we had one woman locked in syndrome on paper you thought was there was no way she should be having surgery but when you met her I discovered that actually she managed to do some online gambling and go on holidays and things so you know like really it's it's not you it's 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 not for you to judge what the patient's quality of life should be Um, Mm -hmm. and I will support high risk and I'm comfortable with that having done high risk for 10 years but equally I think there are a lot of people that end up in ITU that shouldn't yeah, they've not had this full discussion. So, um, sorry, I've gone off at a tangent. What was your question? No, 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 no that that's yeah. not. You were. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you've got and you've had good feedback from that. Yeah, so, so basically, I knew that having um, having spent the time and the the pre assessment department giving me the clinic space and all the rest of it, I'd have to justify it not just on the fact that I know it's good. So in about May, I got one of my registrars to bone up all the patients we've seen uh, with our. There are a number of shared decision making tools out there. There's there kind of patient questionnaires, and um, one of them's called Collaborate. The other one is Sure. Um, I like Sure a bit better because it's simpler, but we had to wait to get permission to use that. So at the time, we used this Collaborate questionnaire, which basically asked the question questions like, you know, how much time was spent ascertaining what was important to you? Um, did the healthcare um, 
person involve you in the decision making you know it's it's a kind of a tool to say not are you happy with your decision but were you supported in your decision making and I got we got all like we scored highly and and the mm-hmm. and more instructive probably was the free text feedback you know like that that was yeah. really that was really rewarding was more hearing you know for the first time I felt like someone was listening to me and you know, comments like that and um, a husband of a man who that the husband of a woman with MS said to me um, oh, this has been transformative honestly um, now he was crying in the clinic when we spoke with him and I think he realised that was because he realised how serious this was uh, and although uh, Graham my colleague was a bit uncomfortable with that actually to me that's a good that's a marker of a good quality consultation if they, if they, if they really get it that this is these yeah. mistakes these are the states your patient, your relative, your patient might go to ITU and highly might likely might not make it out. So in a way, there's a dichotomy for me um, in realistic medicine because I spent half my week working in intensive care. It's the most unrealistic medicine we deliver. Like lots of our patients do badly. We are we are very familiar with that. So I struggle with being an anaesthetist and not being able to talk and I struggle with being an intensivist and trying to deliver realistic medicine it's really hard but actually I think this clinic brings all of those things together for me it lets me talk to patients it lets me have anticipatory care um, discussions with patients and so it's delivering shared decision making and anticipatory care planning at the same time and I have mm. to thank actually also Kirsty Boyd, who's a reader in palliative care medicine, who early doors gave me like a big steer on how to direct, how to structure these conversations and um, has encouraged me also to video myself, which I, Kirsty, I'm sorry, I haven't done yet, but it's on my <laughs> to-do list um, just to make to make these consultations better. But I'm heartened to know that from the feedback that we've got so far, that honestly, patients love it. And anything else aside that's enough for me yeah I think you know I think um you're right like Kirsty Boyd and the other person who I've heard speak around this subject is Catherine Mannix I don't know if you've come across her and um she's um she's a retired palliative care doctor who's written a book called with the end in mind and listen it's her newest book I didn't really put the name to the author yeah and she and and it I think it, what I found, because I'm obviously like kind of earlier in my journey of running a similar kind of clinic as part of my pre-op assessment clinic. And so I'm still learning. And for to hear from them, you know, structures on how to have those conversations, because I think a lot of us want to have those kind of conversations, but it's it takes practice. It's a lot of work to to do it well, to to allow the time for people to speak, process um, the information and to do it in a way where you're not talking about risk in a way that it sounds like you're just trying to talk them out of having surgery yeah. but but the, but like you said what I found really helpful is like talking about what their goals are what their motivations are what they're and we heard in the last episode from Norma about her she a good day for her is if she's able to smile at somebody and they smile back you know, and she feels like she's given them a positive experience and they've given that to that to her. And, you know, for you or I, active, able people, we would, you know, 
I, I might not have really thought about that until she told me. Okay. So we don't, you know, we don't know what we don't ask, do we? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's easy for a risk-averse anaesthetist to look at a lot of evidence in paper and some pulmonary function tests and, you know, some correspondence from various specialties and think, oh, you know, this this is this is really high risk. But honestly, we have gone into the clinic, um, Graham and I, who've delivered it most, and in advance, we've said, right, based on what we see in paper, what do you think? Well, we, would we support this patient? And, you know, we just just as an exercise, we, we say a kind of yes or a no. And honest to God, sometimes we come out of there going, having done a complete about turn. Yeah. Because, you know, you're very compelled by what the patient says. And sometimes yeah. the patient has done a complete about turn by coming and speaking to us. So, like, it, it works both ways. So genuinely... You know, I'm not doing this to save um, to save money and to save critical care spending. I'm doing this because I want to support the patients in making right decisions. Yeah. And how how do you follow up with them? Because I find like a lot of our patients come through as a kind of one stop shop where they because they, they travel big distances a lot as well, like from the Western Isles. And they might come and they'll see the surgeon, they'll be told their diagnosis, they'll be surgery will be discussed, then they come through, they have all these a raft of tests done, and then eventually, after a nurse has spoken to them too, they get to us and they're kind of exhausted. Yeah. And um and usually I start out by um giving them a cup of tea <laughs> and a break uh-huh. to kind of think about everything. Yeah. But um but I think it's a lot of information and quite often they come across as being quite shell-shocked. Yeah. So how do you follow that up? How do we complete that loop? Well, we do yeah. two things. So first of all, we say to the patient, right, you don't have to make a decision today, right? Some of them have made up their minds, but actually many of them have paused for thought, any dropped during the consultation that actually need to think about this more deeply so see we don't you don't need to decide today but we're going to write you a letter detailing what we've discussed and we'll write it in patient-centered language that you can understand now, I, I always insist that they bring a family member with them but there can be wider family that they want to discuss with so then if they've got something in black and white that if they can't remember what was said in the day we've written it down and we've written it in language that is, should be um, readable there's only been a couple of times when I've brought patients back for a second appointment, and that's because they haven't managed to bring family with them the first time. And I think, you know, totally it's a game changer having a family in the room, like every time, absolutely every yeah. time, because quite often the family gets it, but the patient doesn't. Um, or it's the family that are insistent and the patient isn't. So, yeah, this is what happens to this patient. It isn't just going to affect them. It's going to, the pieces are going to be picked up by the family. So, that's the only times that I've had patients come for a second consultation. So normally we cover it by sending a letter out. Then they get some thinking time to reflect and then they go back to the surgeon that's referred them to us. So I, I'm asking the surgeons to engage with this process. Mm-hmm. That's a big difference. And I, I ask them for the brand, so the benefits, the risks, the alternatives, and they do nothing. And I ask the patient for the same thing in a homework letter before they come to the clinic. And if the brands don't match, then it's it's often there's your question answered. But even last week, quite a senior surgeon said to me, what's the brand? So every time I um, get a referral for this clinic, it's an opportunity to spread the message of realistic medicine more widely. So we need to, we don't just want a big wordy referral letter. We want the brand. 
And then once we've had, once we write down the brand from the surgeon, the brand from the patient, and they can see that, they can see what their mortality and complication likelihood is in black and white. I think it just sinks in a bit better than being in a consultation where you're throwing lots of information and you can't remember um, what's been said. Now, try to do teach back at the end of the clinic. So I say to the patient, mm -hmm. Listen, what have you heard me say? Here is what I have heard you say, right? And reflect back what's saying. But when you say, what's, what have you heard me say? Quite often they just, they can't compute that. It's, it's too much. Sometimes the family member can do it. So I think the letter going back to them is great. And it gives them time to think about it, but they come back with a decision. And then at an interval, to complete the loop properly, I've got an ongoing audit. So we basically phone them up. I say, listen, you're going to get a phone call in a few months um, to, um, and we're going to ask you if you think you've made the right decision. So I've got a registrar on that. But we've done that in May and we're about to do it again just now. So we do try to follow up at a six-month interval. Now, sometimes some of those patients will have died. Um, and you get the relative, you get the upset relative. So that in itself is difficult, but that's my process so far. It's evolving, you know, it's hard to decide when the right time is to follow up, but that's that's basically what I'm doing at the moment is a letter and a follow-up phone call. Yeah, and then constantly adapting and improving as you go. Yeah, um, that sounds amazing. And would you be happy to share like your some of that that paperwork that you use yeah yeah so actually what I've done already is I'm I've got this funded in Hare Myers Lanarkshire's got three hospitals and uh, the other two sites that Monklands and Wishaw are now already using my paperwork and I've also set up the IT referral process to be um, usable in all three sites so uh, although they've not managed to get two consultants funded, they are using some of the kind of infrastructure that I've set up because it makes the referral process much, much quicker. You know, you're not waiting for a letter to be typed and dated yeah. and come with snail mail. It's, that's like useless. So all of that I'm, I'm happy to disseminate. And it just means that when people will get used to looking at that letter and where to find the specific bits of information. So if they present to ED, for example, obstructed with a bowel cancer, I'm hopeful that in time, instead of maybe taking them for emergency surgery, if they've expressed a wish to have that, then, yeah. then that information is there when they come through the front door. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I think like a lot of what you've talked about, we're doing, but we're doing it in in isolation, or maybe like some clinicians are doing it more than others. And yeah. and and what happens? With us, is that the the patients are sort of offered the surgery, and then they come to see us, and then there's a bit of backtracking. Yeah. So I feel like we need to be in there having the conversation earlier. Yeah. Do you, like, do you ever go to, for example, like a surgical MDT where they're making the decisions, or? Yeah, so the, they have a vascular MDT. So that's that is difficult actually because quite often the patient the decision's been made and the patient has an expectation. This is yeah. what I'm trying to do is rewind the surgeons and say, listen, if you see a patient in clinic and you get that sense of I don't know if they're fit for this, I don't know if this is the right thing for them, but I've got 20 minutes to talk to them about everything. I said, don't tell them they're having surgery, tell them that they're going they, it, it made its further discussion because as soon as you've created an expectation in the patient they think that that's what they need 
even though it's not. So it's about rewinding the process. Um, and vascular MDT, for example, where you decide whether, whether a patient's having keyhole surgery or open surgery, um, that's that's another kind of worms that I've um, dealt with for the last 10 years as well. So yeah. I've, I've, I've had I've had, had kind of good training in um, trying to trying to meet surgeons halfway, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And, and the surgeons that I work with are really on board with improving the process. You know, they see that um, there's definitely things that we can be doing differently. It's just, you know, when we're in this time of such pressure and everyone sort of working beyond their capacity and without funding, um, it's great to hear a story of how you've changed things you know in the same setting and without you know waiting for resources waiting for funding you're kind of doing it as you go and and I'd hope that that we're in the process of doing that too but it's really inspiring to hear that yeah so uh uh-huh you just you've just got to start small keep going and hopefully like the the evidence will that will persuade the people with the money that it's a good thing so yeah Special thanks so, also, I think we're probably just about out of time, aren't we? Um, yeah. To Jane, to Jane and Austin, two of my amazing colleagues who basically supported me in going to New Zealand for that huge amount of time. So they, they yeah. are, although they've not been involved with the clinic, um, they gave me the opportunity to go and learn and do something different. And I would encourage anyone thinking about a sabbatical, particularly in the current climate, to, like it's not for the faint-hearted, especially if you're taking four kids with you, but my God, <laughs> I know, I know. I think going and working in another health system, although the New Zealand, Australia health systems are so similar to ours, there's so many areas where they do things just slightly differently. And um, it's not the panacea, I don't think, that everyone thinks it is. But, um, you know, they just use their resources differently. And it's it's so good to step out and get a kind of outside perspective, for sure. I'll just tell you one quick thing to to finish. One of the patients we saw on complex decision path in New Zealand was Maori, and so culturally you have to introduce yourself with um, saying uh, what your waka is. So what's your canoe? How did you come to be here? What's your mountain? And um, what's your river? So I had to stand up and introduce myself and say, "Hi, I'm Susie. Um, my walker was Air New Zealand. Um, my mountain is Ben Lomond, and my river is the Clyde." So they can't contextualise you until you give until you give your background. And then uh-huh. we, then we had prayer and song before the clinic started, and it was honestly um, so joyous. It was so joyous. It, like really. I was like, wow, this is, you know, we should we should have more, um, more we should have more music in the NHS. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And more just together time. So what would your song be if you were going to do that in Lanarkshire? Uh, oh, gosh. Oh, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't thought about that. You have, you'll, you'll have to. You need to come back to us with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, something that would be appropriate <laughs> to patients and me. <laughs> yeah but yeah people talk about that you know we talk about like what what matters to you but there's also a kind of where have you been question um which I read a book by Oprah actually and she talks about that so those two questions about you know your your history yeah. as well as what yeah. happens now for you and what's important are so important and and um yeah I'll definitely I'll think about that what would my song be that's brilliant I love that <laughs>